Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan on Cambridge 105. Welcome to episode four of Cambridge Minds, which features two ambassadors for our city who travel the globe extolling the virtues of its creativity. Coming up, we'll meet a man whose dedication to teaching once left him staring down the barrel of a gun in Los Angeles. These days, Andy Salmon is at Anglia Ruskin University, developing academic relationships between Cambridge and the rest of the world. But first to Cherry Hinton and the global HQ of ARM. If you've got a smartphone, they probably designed the processor which makes it work. Think of a number and multiply it by a billion and you'll have some idea how successful their chips are. Jim Davis used to run his own company which worked with ARM. Then he took up the role of fellow at ARM itself, where when he's not on an aeroplane, he now sits on the Fullbourne Road, surrounded by some of the cleverest people on the planet. So, Jem Davies, here we are in your office, and there's a whiteboard here. I've cleaned it specially you, for you. Well, I'm a bit disappointed. Not very, not very well, as it happens. <laughs> what would be on that whiteboard if I came in while you were actually at work? So, uh, oftentimes, of course, other people steal my office while I'm travelling, so there'll be block diagrams of bits of uh, graphics processes that I don't understand, um, which is very good for impressing visitors. But um, when it's being used by me, it's often lists of things, things I know I'm going to forget unless I, unless I write them down. And occasionally some sort of uh, um, chains of events, things that we need to happen, this before this, and then that happens. So, so do you actually sit here in this office and have creative thoughts yourself or is that what all those people outside on the other side of the glass are doing uh, mostly it's the other people who are having the clever ideas so we ruthlessly employ clever people and um, oftentimes my job is to sift the ideas on a bad day my job is to stamp on all of the clever ideas and just will you please stop having clever ideas we just need to get this product out the door but that is a bad day usually it's about saying that sounds right or um, explaining to somebody why that is a clever idea but it's not a clever idea for us that why we're not going to proceed with that because it doesn't fit in with some other aspect of strategy um, I do occasionally have clever thoughts myself I'm I'm listed on four patents so oftentimes it I mean I can't remember the origin of the quote about uh, innovation being uh, some, some some percent perspiration as opposed to inspiration um, but it it, it it is often about fitting things together, and I'm very lucky in, to be surrounded by very clever people who have great ideas, and the best bit of the job is when you say, ah, you say this, you say that, actually neither of you is right, but if you put the bits of what you've just said together and just twist it slightly, that's brilliance. The figures for arm are just extraordinary i was waiting in reception and you have a video showing which extols the the virtues of 50 billion chips 
And uh, I'm sure almost by the time we've finished this interview, it'll be, you know, a 60 billion. I have no <laughs> idea. But in, in a nutshell, Jem, what is ARM doing? What's it for? Because as I understand it, you don't actually manufacture anything, you, no. but you do design things. We design things, and at its heart is something incredibly simple. It's outsourced engineering. So companies A, B, C and D all need a widget. We design the widget and we sell it to companies A, B, C and D for cheaper than it would cost them to do it themselves. So there's a fundamental economic sort of model in all of this, which is about us doing something that is applicable to multiple companies. And so, yeah, we don't actually make chips. We design parts, individual parts of chips. Uh, it started out with the central processor unit um, uh, CPU and ARM designed those and they turned out to be useful. They turned out to be low power and it transpired that uh, actually low power mattered to people who wanted battery powered devices and lots of companies turned out to want to buy the things that we were making. Well let's just mention some of them if we can because you know I've got uh, my smartphone here that's got an ARM chip in it hasn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Several. Uh, yeah and my tablet is down there that's got one. Yeah. Has my laptop got several? So your laptop um, itself might have a hard disk drive. So you'll probably find a couple of our processors in there. You might find some other processors in some of the ancillary peripherals. Um, the only thing that it probably isn't uh, doing is actually running the main operating system itself. And just to go back a few, as it were, decades... I can remember when the transistor arrived. Yes. That was a that was a big thing, wasn't it? That suddenly we could have portable radios that didn't have to have valves, so we didn't have to have mains power, we could mm -hmm. have batteries. Is there really a straight line in the development of thinking that goes from the transistor to the chip in this phone? Almost almost exactly. So what somebody invented a transistor, then somebody invented smaller transistors, then somebody invented smaller transistors, and somebody decided that you could put the two transistors together and actually manufacture them as one rather than as individual parts. And the phrase integrated circuits came about, ICs. So we could get a whole number of transistors all on one lump called a die and eventually somebody worked out you could get enough transistors on one piece of silicon to make an entire computer and that line continues and those transistors get smaller and smaller and one of the sides of my job I have to keep track of this I, I don't know anything really about transistor design but I do know they're awfully small uh, so our latest commercial product is built on transistors that are 10 nanometers wide I'm uh, guessing a nanometer is quite so thin. A thousand millionth of a meter. Extraordinary. So a millionth of a millimeter. And you just have that idea, and then somebody else manufactures it, and. Um, the Do way they sell it on to Apple or Microsoft or Samsung or whoever? The way I explain it to my mother was knitting patterns. We don't, <laughs> we, we don't make jumpers, we make knitting patterns. And we sell a knitting pattern to somebody and then they put it on their machine and it builds a jumper. So we sell a design to somebody who makes a chip in almost invariably, though that's changing a little in the last few years, the, the person who makes that chip then sells that chip to 
somebody who makes a consumer device like a phone. So we're, we're two companies away from anybody you've heard of. <laughs> so we're having this conversation not in Silicon Valley, but in Silicon Fen, as some yeah. people like to call it here yeah. in Cambridge. Why is this extraordinary global thing called ARM based here in Cambridge? Well, the headquarters are here in Cambridge. We now have 40 offices worldwide. Um, where I was presented with some stats the other day. We have 40 offices worldwide and we employ people of 63 different nationalities, which was a fact that was just so glorious I remembered it instantly. Why? The real answer is probably because that's where the founders were, and, and it, so accident is a short answer. Why has it been successful despite us being here? Well, that's a more interesting question, actually, and I think it's precisely because most of our customers were eight hours' time difference to the West or eight hours' time difference to the East, and the Koreans don't think we're American, and the Americans don't think we're Koreans, and, and, and so we've been able to take a fairly independent view of the world. We have been called the Switzerland of the IP world. And I, I don't think that's terribly unfair. <laughs> OK, so is Cambridge still a centre, not just for people who are interested in science, but for people who are good at innovation? I'm thinking, is is Cambridge really like the, the Coventry of the motor industry? I think it is. I mean, there are numerous all the time. So I started out, obviously, many years ago, and uh, there was this thing that eventually had a name called the Cambridge phenomenon. Um, we just thought it was called getting a job, but eventually it got a name. And somebody drew this diagram, which was a family tree of all of the Cambridge companies. And they split off and formed new companies and new... Fo either, you know, a group of people get the hump and go off and do a new startup, or companies literally float out. Company, so Arm was floated out of Acorn. And it's an incredible environment, and I'm very lucky to have been here. I've, I've worked here all my working career. Some might call it lack of imagination, but I, every time I was ready to move somewhere else, um, something else came up in Cambridge. Cambridge has been incredibly good to me. The, the opportunities have been here. Self-belief had a lot to do with it. Uh, nobody told us we couldn't do it. And several of the things that have come out of Cambridge companies, Cambridge innovation, have at first sight seemed a little implausible. But, you know, we've had good ideas and good engineering. And that's worked incredibly well. And just talk to me a, a bit more about... You, you, you mentioned Korea. We tend to think of electronics as being something that is done in Japan or is done, you know, somewhere else in Asia. We know about your Googles and your Facebooks and um, Microsofts and all that stuff in America, but electronics is thought of as being something that kind of escaped us. And yet here we are in, in ARM, which is, you know, one of the, the global leaders in this. So why? Partly because... Because, I mean, the success of, of the intellectual property companies uh, like Arm, um, but there are others who do very successfully in, in, in Britain. I'm going to stop you there oh, and just okay. ask Sorry, you. I because no, I've done the no you've, what you've done is you've mentioned IP and intellectual property. And, you know, I do know what that means. And I know that it's not the same as the IP of my computer. But could you just dive, so it's <laughs> go a, off down that cul-de-sac for a second sure. and explain the difference? So it's the design. So we actually, um, we design 
design a CPU or, in, in my case, a, uh, the group I work in, a graphics processor and other media processors. But we don't make that chip. So the IP, the intellectual property, is that. It is that actual design. So if I want to make a chip that you've designed, I pay you a license fee? Yes, you pay us a license fee, and then typically you pay us a royalty every time you make one as well. It's only a tiny, tiny royalty, but they do add up when you get to 50 billion. And so the, we call them foundries. Um, uh, the places who actually make chips are now incredibly few in number. The uh, reduction in size of the transistor we talked about has meant it's become an incredibly specialist business. There are really only you know, a very small handful of companies in the world who, who make chips now. And so, yes, that evaporated out of the UK. We didn't do that. We concentrated on that design bit and other people make those chips. So that separation has actually somewhat worked in our favour. We've not been distracted by the need to invest, I think it's $20 billion for a new factory to build chips. It's that sort of number. If you want to build an, the next generation chips, you've, you've got to spend around about 10 to $20 billion to build that factory. But just going back to what we were saying about the people sitting outside here, what you've got, I guess, in Cambridge is a a pool of talent and they might have come from the university or, or from the other university they might just be attracted to Cambridge it's, it's become an attractive centre and not just because of our all of these companies here have become attractive to um, smart people from all over the world so we employ the best in the world if we can, if we can get them uh, if we can attract them here and uh, that that explain some of the large numbers of nationalities that we have working here. I mean, even outside my office, I can point at several people from a, a number of different nationalities, all of whom are attracted to, uh, to come to work for ARM. And, I, and I've always maintained it's the three very simple reasons. They want to work with the best in the world. They want to work on stuff they find cool and interesting. And they actually want to walk down the street and point at something in the shops and say, I had a hand in that. That's one of the interesting things about your business, I think, that there is something tangible. Yes. Because a lot of what modern industry is about is doing stuff that literally the man in the street has no idea about. But at least, as you say, your people can say, see that phone, see that app, see yeah. that whatever, I did that. Yeah, and I, and I think people often lose sight of the fact that Engineering and the, the technical subjects can often be incredibly creative. We actually talk about the creative industries almost to exclude engineering. And I've always been slightly miffed about that because m most of the people who work here create. That's a really British idea, though, isn't it? It's because when we go to school, we have to do arts or sciences. But if we were in America, we could do both. Yeah, I think there's a lot in that. OK, so uh, where are we going then? Everybody talks about the speed of processors and the size. What are you looking at now that we outside of ARM just can't visualise? Oh, I don't know that I can do anything you can't visualise. One of the things about the computers getting faster and more capable is that we've got a long list of things on our inbox that we can't do. We know we could do them if we had faster computers, but we can't do them. 
So what's interesting? So your ideas are outstripping the technology. Yes, I mean, I uh, so my hobby is gliding, as you know. And if you talk to the wing designers, the wing designers are twenty years ahead, and they said, "I've got this beautiful design for a wing. Unfortunately, you've got no materials I can make it out of. But when you've got newer, stronger, lighter materials, come back to me because I've already got it." So it's actually quite similar. So one of the things I think is going to be really interesting is. If we talk about the digital world, you know, that, that, that bit that's out there in the Googles and Facebooks and whatever, touchscreens were incredibly transformational. Everybody loved touchscreens and uh, the new touchscreen interfaces on phones and things like that. But actually, one of the things that is most uh, uh, important about that is the digital world didn't change. We taught the real world how to interact with the digital world in a way that the real world found more acceptable. So actually, we just trained people to talk to the computers better. That was great. That was transformational, and it's led to fantastic innovation. I'm not for an instant denigrating it. But I think it would be much more interesting if we could teach the digital world to interact with the real world in the way that we interact. You and I are sitting here looking at each other. Um, I'm waving my hands around occasionally. Um, I make facial expressions that you pick up on. You know, you're nodding at me when I'm talking. There's a wealth of cues of information there that if you simply just typed the characters into a keyboard of our conversation, you, you wouldn't be there. So one of the things I'm working on is precisely that. It is, what do we need to do to help computers interact with people in the way that people interact with people? And some of that's already going on. Um, you can already talk to your phone and get it to sometimes do what you, you say. But it's getting better. I mean, you can see the pace at which that their speech, we call it speech recognition and natural language recognition, uh, the pace at which that's getting better. You can see that that's going to happen universally. And also, you carry around a smartphone with two cameras in it, you know, one on the front, one on the back. So we've already got a lot of cameras available to us. Well, what could we do if we could actually get the phone or your other devices, don't, don't, don't obsess about phones, to see and to understand? I mean, one of the things I always say is it's actually quite a hard physics problem to design a burglar alarm sensor that can tell the difference between a big dog and a burglar. Okay, That's quite hard. A three-year-old child can do that. I mean, a two-year-old knows the difference between a dog and a burglar. It's just blindingly obvious. But actually, that's quite hard, and it turns out that we need an awful lot of processing power to be able to do that in, in computers. One of the things that ruthless reduction in size of those transistors has meant is that they, we have much, much more computing power now, and we can do some of these things, combined with a lot of very clever research from physicists and psychologists and people who understand you know, psychovisual processing. So there might be a time when I don't have to come to you to do this interview because what we now think of as Skype or FaceTime yeah. is so much better better yes. and more robust yes. that we stop meeting we just we can talk wherever we are is that world within our reach it's certainly within our reach i mean i do a ridiculous amount of travel around the world and and some of that sounds incredibly attractive i'm cautious about that i have to say Sometimes I fly around the other side of the world, you know, we have a meeting and I fly back and I think, well, why did I bother doing that? You know, I could have sent that in by post, yet alone by video. 
And sometimes you're always surprised because actually the human business of meeting people produces things. It's, it's not predictable. And I've flown around the world and I've learned a little nugget of something that wasn't on the agenda. Um, maybe even the person didn't even think that it was important to me. But we get chatting over coffee or, or, or even beer or dinner and, and human communication takes place. Now, undoubtedly, we can replace a lot of that with better video communication. But I'm still very hopeful for human to human interaction. Talk to me about the Internet of Things. I'm very interested in the idea that I can access my sky box from my phone. That's a good thing. Um, And I understand how I can probably do that with my heating as well, if I've got the right kind of house. Mm -hmm. Um, Moving into the next decade and beyond, what will we be able to do remotely, Jem, that we can't do now, do you think? I'll say, first of all, that I don't know, because I'm, I, I want to be quite clear Is about Is that it. a known unknown or, or I, I, an, I an unknown known? I've got very clear ideas about what Arm and other companies will provide in the way of capabilities. One of the really exciting things about things like smartphones is you provide some capabilities and then people use them in ways that you don't expect. So we don't write apps. You know, we, we, we design processors, we give them to people, they build chips, and then, you know, companies build smartphones. And then other people write apps that get downloaded onto those to do things that none of us had ever had any. And you get this tremendous fan out. Um, so, you know, there's there's hundreds of us, there are thousands of them, and when we make tens and hundreds of millions of phones and there are millions of developers out there who are utilising those capabilities. So in a very real sense... I'll bet you it's something I don't currently see. But I think there are, there are wealth of opportunities. I do find it strange that if I want to fly around the world and pay for things and have loyalty cards at hotels and airlines and things like that, that I have to carry around a wallet of credit cards that's an inch thick. It's 2015, the last time I checked. Um, that was supposed to have gone years ago. It is still a little bizarre that um, the entry to my house and my car is predicated on a bent piece of metal. Again, it is 2015. I was thinking that it would be great if I could pick up my phone and go plip, 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 mm-hmm. and my car would drive itself round from the car park and just park outside with the engine on ready for me to get in. That's not too far away. That's not too far away. And the ability to have cars park themselves in much more dense packing arrangements in car parks seems to me to have a direct economic benefit. As anyone in Cambridge who's ever tried to park in a car park will know. So self-driving cars, I mean, we can do it now. Uh, Actually, the problems are as much regulatory and social as anything else. For instance, we kill 3,500 people a year in this country. We're actually pretty good. We've got one of the best safety records per head of population in the world. But actually, we kill 3,500 people a year through accidents, most of which are caused by human error. Are we as a country prepared to swap that for 150 deaths a year caused by faulty software. I think that poses a number of interesting social and ethical dilemmas, which I'm not sure we're ready for. So you mentioned gliding. Yes. Now, that seems to me to be almost a kind of antithesis of what you do here, because 
there's no motor, is there? There's no, I mean, there's plenty of engineering and a glider, I grant you, but there's no power in that sense. It, you're, it, it's you and the elements. Is that what attracts you to it? It, it is. To a, so it's a single-seater glider, so I get away from work and I don't have to talk to anybody and it's very much my escape and my therapy. Technology has crept in. But in a good way. So it used to be that we would race around the country and uh, the turn points were highly visible objects and you used to take black and white pictures of a, with a camera mounted on the side pointing down the wing and you'd take a picture of Didcot Power Station and then you'd take a picture of a railway junction up near Leicester that's very, very identifiable, Y-shaped and come home again. And that's 300 kilometres and you race around that task and the winner is the person who did it fastest. And GPS now enables us to do that without taking any pictures. So we have a GPS just like you have in your phone or your car and a little solid-state recorder. So at the end of the day, out spits an SD card, and I just put that over and say, well, look, I did it. That's rather nice. That's helped us. But also there's a little computer in the glider now that says... Um, which way the wind's blowing. Does it say there's a thermal no. over there, Jem? No, they're working on that. They are working on that. The, um, well, the Americans are working on something called uh, wind shear detection systems. And that's for good sound safety systems for airliners approaching into uh, airports. But actually, wind shear and a thermal looks about the same. <laughs> if you can detect one, you can detect the other. But... No, it, it is still very much a human skill gliding well. And I've flown with some great pilots and you'd be flying along and they just veer over a bit to the left. And you say, why'd you go over there, Peter? Oh, I don't know, just look better. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'm really learning from this episode. So, no, we just, it just looked better. So you, you love to fly yeah. and you work in this digital world. Mm -hmm. How far are we away, do you think, from the jetpack? The jetpack is still tricky, and I actually started out as a chemist, and there are some sound reasons why energy density is a problem. So the energy density of rocket fuels is, you know, it's how much energy can you get out of a, a cubic foot of rocket fuel is, is, is a serious issue, holding a, a bunch of that back. I mean, the original ones were massively unstable, which is why they never really took off. We could now fix that. So um, all these new drones, they're, they're stabilised by computer. So actually, they're massively unstable, but the computers are keeping it stable. So actually, we, the, the computing could help with that. But realistically, I think it's a, I mean, it's a bit of a crazy idea. You could, you, you'd have to calm it down a bit to have everyone using it. I think I'm looking forward to it, though, already. <laughs> oh, God, wouldn't it be fun? It would be absolutely <laughs> brilliant. Just one other thing about gliding. You can't sort of get in a glider and go somewhere and park it and do something and come home, can you? It, 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 well, you can. I mean, it's not what we mostly... We mostly uh, go out for the day, and so my aim would be to go for a... 300 kilometre flight and come home for tea and medals um, but unless uh, you do entirely on your own yes it's not like playing golf where you go around and have a chat no and you can't are, take the family with you what some a terribly antisocial thing this is Joe uh, yes <laughs> guilty <laughs> guilty as charged everybody needs alone time there are two seater gliders and some people and that is much more sociable and I have done some of that and it is a good laugh actually and there are radios and you can talk to your mates and say isn't this bit tricky yes it is isn't it? 10-4. Um, yeah. But um, you know, all the socialising is afterwards in the bar. So a uh, couple of things before we stop. Uh, I just want to see, have you got a... No, I was, I, I was wondering if you had an Apple Watch. 
Um, I don't, no. But if you did, would it have one of your processors in it? Um, first rule about Apple is never talk about Apple. But okay, th fine. But there are smartwatches out there that contain <laughs> processors designed by ARM. It's, it's, uh, I've been trained. But here you are. You aren't, why aren't you, you know, as tacky as I kind of expected you might be? I'm quite Luddite in a number of the technology fields we go into, which has actually been really good because it, it convinces me that I don't know. So a thing called phablets, you know, half phone, half tablet. Right. I thought that was a stupid idea. I said it was completely ridiculous. It was too big to go in your pocket, um, and it wasn't big enough to use as a tablet, and I couldn't imagine anyone being stupid enough to buy one of those. Turns out, curiously enough, it doesn't matter what I think, um, you know, 100 million people went out and bought one, and they were extremely popular in Asia, also extremely popular with women who don't put them in their pocket, they carry them in their handbag. So, you know, guilty as charged. I've just been guilty of the most tremendous narrow-minded thinking. I'm thinking about things from my perspective, what makes sense to me, and that doesn't work. So the ARM model is always about enabling somebody else to have an idea. We, we do this, we sell that to them, they must sell that to them. Everybody making money along the path, everybody's innovating along the path, everybody's having new ideas along the path. And as soon as you try and control everything, right, I'm, well, I'm going to stop that, I'm going to make chips and I'm going to make phones and I'm going to control the world, you, it's like diversity. If you cut down the number of classes of people, colours of people, genders of people or whatever, if you cut it down, you're closing yourself off to a number of different viewpoints. Uh, whereas we, we explicitly open ourselves. And the more you go down our value, what we call the value chain, you open yourself up to possibilities. I think smartwatches is an interesting one. They're still in their infancy. I don't think we've found the killer app. You know, people say, oh, well, I could just surreptitiously read my email on my watch. And I, it's no, not surreptitiously. No, it's not, you might as well pull your phone out of your pocket and get busted for it. But the whole concept of wearable technology opens up a huge field. I'm convinced there will be major strides made there that, that, that we probably haven't seen yet. It's time to do what all the guests on Cambridge Minds have to do, and they get no warning about this. At the end of the programme, I ask you four questions. It's called the Cambridge Questionnaire. This is about the town, the city in which you live. I'm going to ask you, first of all, Jem, what is your favourite walk in Cambridge? Oh, that one's quite easy. I live just north of the river in Cambridge, and for many years I would walk to work, crossing over the river, cross Jesus Green, and up Portugal Place and Portugal Street, and uh, along through the colleges down King's Parade, cross the river again and into my office. That walk, combining both the river, I'm a big fan of water, the wildlife on the river, and... Portugal Place particularly. I, I just think Portugal Place is such a beautiful place. I mean, it's I wouldn't lovely, want to live it? there. No, 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 no. <laughs> but it is lovely, isn't it? Yeah. OK, next question. Do you have a favourite shop? Cambridge Wine Merchants on Bridge Street. That'll do nicely. Big fan. And if you like uh, eating, this one should be easy. Favourite place to eat? Uh, again, easy. Three horseshoes, Mattingly. 
I just think that Richard Stokes, who owns and runs the place, is tremendously sure-footed. He has a very sure hand with his cooking. He will try new things, um, which for many chefs is, is is dreadful. You know, they say, oh, you know, I'm going to do this, this and this. And, you know, when Richard says, oh, I, this is a new twist on such and such, I'm confident, you know, that, yes, I would never have ordered it, but if, you know, he says, I can't remember what he did. He did a raspberry crumble and all the bits were separate. <laughs> it wasn't a kid, but it was glorious. I just think he's got a really sure hand with cooking. Um, we've been going there for years. They treat us incredibly well, and, and I love it. I think it's just really, really good cooking. Jem Davies, thank you for being a good fellow, because that's what you are, a fellow. of. Um, and uh, it's been great having you on Cambridge Minds. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much indeed. Jem Davies on Cambridge Minds from Cambridge 105. Now from ARM to ARU and Andy Salmon, who also travels the world talking about Cambridge. But in his case, he wants to make Anglia Ruskin University into a destination for students from Beijing to Bottisham, from Hong Kong to Histon. He's the Deputy Dean for Partnerships and Enterprise, and I went to see him in his office on East Road. Cambridge Minds with Trevor Dan. Andy, we'll talk about your job at AIU later, but I wondered, first of all, whether you feel that you have a bit of a chip on your shoulder because you're the second university in this town. What's it like going around the world and having to say, uh, no, we're not Cambridge University, we're another university in Cambridge? Uh, Not difficult at all. Uh, I think it actually makes it easier. We fulfil, the two universities fulfil very different functions. Um, I've worked in other cities in the UK where the Oldham and New University are very close together, uh, both in purpose uh, and uh, world focus. In our two cases, uh, that's clearly not the case, and I think therefore we benefit from having really good relations with each other. What is Anglia Ruskin University strategy then? What are you, what are you for? We were originally established by uh, John Ruskin, who established the Cambridge School of Art in 1858. And I think the modern university, which has grown enormously from those beginnings, is very much focused around exactly what he would still recognise as important, namely the vocational application of thinking. And the further value, intellectual value, that is gathered when you apply what you know, and then that becomes another series of thoughts and activities. So would it be fair to say that your opposite number at Cambridge University is thinking, whereas you're thinking and doing? Yeah, I think that's exactly it. And... What does that mean in terms of the kind of students that you teach here? That's a very good question. Um, I think it means several very relevant things, socially relevant things. The first is that we still have uh, a lot of students who are first-generation university students. Uh, there's a very strong regional pool, both within East Anglia and, and, and North London, uh, and, and obviously heading, heading towards the, the middle of, of England. 
But it also means that we have a, increasingly a, a very strong international pull as well. Because, uh, for instance, if you are Chinese, it's, uh, three generations of your family will save up for, for you to go to university for one year. Uh, and if you're going to do that, then you actually need to do something which is going to add to your commercial value when you finish. You mentioned China. I'm just going to pop off at a tangent here. We're sitting in your office at Anglia Ruskin University, and there is a lot of Chinese art. Uh, Is that a particular hobby of yours? Sort of. Um, As Deputy Dean of Faculty of Arts, Law and Social Sciences, uh, we have very strong relationships with uh, a a series of Chinese art colleges, uh, Tsinghua, CAFA, which is the foremost art school in China. Uh, during my travels, uh, one of one of the joys is that you end up talking a lot about art. Uh, you to- end up talking to artists about art, and they give you pieces of their work. So, so uh, here's the thing about you. You know that what they sometimes say about the most successful teachers end up being head teachers, so they don't actually ever teach anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you're an academic. You've written papers. You think big thoughts, but you spend quite a lot of your time doing what I'm going to call admin. Is that fair? Uh, no. <laughs> but you're laughing, so I think it, there might be a grain of truth. Let me explain. Um, if by admin you mean not teaching, then the answer is yes. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I still miss teaching terribly because I, I, I found it a fundamentally life-giving uh, experience. But the reason I went into what I now do is because I felt that if you managed teaching the whole process well, or tried to, then this would actually make a a, a further positive impact in terms of the experiences that people have in classrooms. So all my work is related to that aim, particularly in my case, it's related to uh, working with new partners on new business, be that in the UK or or overseas, and in many ways, I suppose in in, in a commercial sense, creating new courses, new products, new new areas that can become the curriculum of tomorrow. And in a world that's changing so fast, uh, I think it's really, really important that, you know, an educational curriculum, an educational system is not just teaching various versions of history. Is it going to change the experience for a UK student as universities get more and more people from other countries coming in? Yeah, I hope so. You uh, hope so? Yeah, definitely. You, so you don't think that would damage the experience? No, not at all. And I think that's a really, really relevant question. More people travel around the world every year in university-related activity, be they students, researchers or staff than died in the whole of the Second World War. This is That's a stat you've used in a presentation, Andy, isn't it? It is. <laughs> but 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 I, I think it's I think it's deeply revealing. Mm. It, this is this is to me this is the perhaps the most exciting aspect of, of the work that I'm I'm privileged to do. This I think is a huge potential change for good. A globally interconnected world with people who have lived and studied in other people's countries and have learnt that as well as their studies, we are indeed culturally, intellectually, commercially 
inseparable. This is, to me, the big advantage of the 21st century. Now, in case anybody's thinking, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? Because it's his job. Mm-hmm. Let's just go back to when you were a recent graduate. You didn't do what you could have done, which was, I guess, stuck around a university, got a nice, comfortable graduate and research sort of fellowship. You went off to teach because that was your thing. And, and you didn't even do that in England, did you? So where, where did you go and what was, was nurturing about that experience? Two responses to that question. In the first instance, I, I think this was you know, not, not atypical of, of, of my generation. I, I went in, I, first of all, I went into teaching in um, a, a very reputationally disadvantaged school in the north of England, um, because precisely because it was a massive change from the life I'd had at university, and I, I, I enjoyed that immensely. After that, I went and worked in the States, and in that, in that case, I was teaching in uh, community colleges in, Los, in, in downtown Los Angeles um, and teaching uh, immigrant communities. Recently arrived in America, 18 different nationalities in a class, and none of them with any allegiance to being American, but with huge allegiances to where, to where they'd come from. And I found that, to be honest, probably the most challenging uh, and exciting uh, experience that I'd, I'd ever had to that point. And it completely changed my way of looking at everything. And what I realised from doing it was that the shape of our world was changing very profoundly in, in the southern United States 20 years ago in a way that I had really not kind of grasped here yet. And that if, if one really was interested in culture and society, then it was a great opportunity to be involved in actually being part of that change. You make it sound like a very benign experience, but I imagine that was some kind of risk. I mean, teaching in downtown L.A., I mean, frankly, getting out of a car and walking on the street in downtown L.A. is a bit of a challenge. Well, I was never shot. Um, (laughs) I was was held at gunpoint twice. Um, uh, The area of of Los Angeles is much cleaner now than it was 20 years ago. But, you know, 20 years ago, yes, it was a very very exciting part of, 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 of the state. But the one thing that really, really struck me uh, was that the students who came from very, very challenging backgrounds. And the first time I walked into class, I felt absolutely terrified, if I'm honest. They, they were um, clearly challenging, visu- visually challenging people, <laughs> put it that way. Um, I never had one problem with them. They'd all made a really determined effort to get into education, to get out of what it was they were living in, and the college was on a hill, and they had, they had. I, I asked a couple of them about this uh, fairly soon after I started, and they said, "Oh, we leave all that stuff at the bottom of the hill." So, you know, that actually their behaviour in class was impeccable. What was surprising then was several months in, when several of my best students, the police arrived in my class and took them away uh, for for what turned out to be their direct involvement in a drive-by shooting. And I would never have put the the, the murder with the the, the two lads who'd handed their essays in regularly every week. And it, it really was that about the kind of schizophrenic nature of, uh, of that part of Los Angeles at that point. Is there a slightly schizophrenic 
part of your nature that on the one hand you're an academic which is a largely solitary occupation I think there's a lot of reading and writing and studying and thinking and it's fairly solo and but actually you you enjoy the risk don't you enjoy the, that 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 challenge yeah, and I mean, I, I think I think like loads of people, I don't think this is this is this is particularly unusual. I, uh, I'm interested in the arts because I'm interested in people. Um, I think I think art is all about, in whatever its form, art is all about what hasn't become policy yet, in some form or another, be that political policy, social theory, uh, religion, however we want to, to, to say we've got more established structures. Art tends to be uh, the exploration of uh, what is sensed but not yet completely known. And so putting that together with, the, if you like, a very sociable view of the world seems to me to be a very logical thing. Uh, the other thing that then you also need in terms of any engagement with art is a, is, is a little bit of space to reflect. And that may only be several hours long enough to write something, for instance, before you then get back into the, the, the more socially engaged part of your life. But th- that uh, constant symbiosis, I think, is, uh, yeah, good. And by art, you, you don't just mean formal you know hanging it on the wall visual art i guess you just mean the arts i mean i mean any yeah. any form of artistic activity and i would extend that to in in my case that means uh, means more than you know music writing theater film dance i think that being creative is a way of looking at the world and i think that the division between art and science doesn't really exist and i think that creativity is about known input plus one if you like and that that can apply to just about anything hold on hold on hold on okay the diff- there is no difference between arts and sciences not that there's no difference but try I think telling that to people who run schools and universities the divisions that we make between these things are Necessary in the sense that in order to do anything, we have to categorise something, we have to identify a parameter to it. But we, we, I think we always need to remember that those parameters are completely artificial. And you can see this particularly in terms of current technology is really interesting in this regard because it's very, it's very much challenging. Um, I'm very involved at the moment in a large bid for... a. a applied digital games uh, incubation unit called Reactor. And the, the point behind this is to use games technologies in things that you would never normally link those things to. So, say, health, medical technology. And I think this is terrific because, because things that 20 years ago, 10 years ago maybe even, we would, we would have thought of as, as very distinctly separate. They, re- they retain their, 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 their distinctions, but th- th- there are journeys between these things now that didn't exist before. One of the people that I spoke to earlier in this series is Professor Jim Seacourt, who's the professor of the uh, history and philosophy of science at Cambridge University. And he said exactly the same thing. He said how lucky he was to have graduated from an American university where he could keep his interest in literature and science Mm. running at the The same same level. Uh, And whereas we get pigeonholed much earlier on, don't we? Yes, Yes, and it's it's it is it is a uh, what's one of the things I think that the American education system, um, um, amongst a number of others, d- does very well. 
Okay, I'm going to ask you to stand up because what I'm going to do now, we can't do sitting down. Look at all these pictures you've got on your wall. Now, I want to know who some of these people are. I, I can recognise um, that's Dylan Thomas, yeah, Indeed. over there. WH Jordan. Byron? No, uh, Shelley. Keats. Keats. Keats, Keats, yes. We've mostly then just got favourite painters. Rembrandt, Caravaggio, Stanley Spencer, Constable, Picasso and Van Dyke. And these are things you like to look at while you're on the phone or on your computer here? Yeah, of course. Which is a charming thing, and it's not something people do in offices anymore, is it? I, I don't think they do. Uh, Maybe it's because we've all gone open plan, except you haven't. We, we, yes, one of the majority of not having an open plan office, I suspect. It's all food for thinking. I can see a couple more Dylan Thomases over there, look. Yes, I, I like I like. He enjoyed Dylan. a drink, didn't he? He did. Yeah, and a, and a fag. <laughs> OK, let's go and sit down. Very, absolutely fascinating. What's that building there that's falling down? The painting is Bruegel, and it's uh, the Tower of Babel. And what's this painting? Is that Liverpool? That's Liverpool, which is uh, where, where I went to university and did my, did my doctorate. Very important. So, <laughs> All right, Andy, you're allowed to sit down again there. Thank you. Uh, so we're at Anglia Ruskin University. We're talking with Andy Salmon. He's got to go in a minute because he's got a meeting with the Vice-Chancellor, which is obviously as important as it gets around these ear parts. This travelling that you do, I'm really interested in how you prepare yourself. Some people really enjoy travelling and others don't. I, when I was doing a lot of it myself, I used to say I do my best work with a passport in my back pocket. Um, and then I got really bored with it. And I, I, the thought of getting on an aeroplane began to be something I truly did not look forward to. I just wonder how you deal with that. Um, it's very, it's, yeah, yeah, very good question. I will be very happy never to see the inside of another long-haul flight ever again. In the five and a half years that I've been at Anglia Ruskin, I've flown around the world nine and a half times. So that side of it, I lost interest in probably by about lap three. The thing that I haven't lost interest in is the wonderful people that you meet on every venture. And that always makes it worthwhile. I'm also very lucky in that I don't suffer particularly from jet lag, which is, is, is I think, very fortuitous. Time difference thing a bit, but, but, I, I, but I think that's it. Whereas I think there's something else called jet lag that people have that um, I don't think I've, to be honest, I don't think I've ever experienced a night's sleep and, and I'm kind of like back where I was before I set off. That's because yeah. you're a fit, wirily built chap. <laughs> you don't carry around lots of extra fat. Mm. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Maybe that's it. Okay, so um, I want to go back and uh, ask you about your own days of studying. You did a PhD on Henry Green, uh, one of the modernist novelists who's pretty much forgotten, let's yes, be honest. Absolutely. You know, whereas his friends like Evelyn Waugh are celebrated yep. to this day. Tell us a bit about Henry Green and why we should go and read something by him. Still, for me, one of the most imaginative writers of English prose, almost Baroque in some ways, so quite esoteric. Uh, on the other hand, uh, remarkably 
focused on ordinary, if, if, if such a thing exists, ordinary people, ordinary lives. His, his, his novels were full of the rhythms of, of working-class Birmingham. Because he yeah. went to Eton, didn't he? Yes. But he, he then worked on the shop floor, albeit it, in his dad's firm. His, but he, his he, dad's firm. He, he kind of hung around with the working class so yes. he could get the rhythms and, of their speech. And, and I think thoroughly enjoyed... I mean, in, in, in a completely non-patronising way, unlike some of those other 30 writers, I think thoroughly enjoyed the whole experience. And the thing that you really get, why should you read one of his books still now... The vibrancy of, of, of life, I mean, it's perhaps his three most successful novels, the trilogy Living, Loving and Party Going. And if you think life is about living, loving and party going, then those are books for you. <laughs> and they are three separate books, three but separate they're often books. published together, aren't they're they? They're published together. And, and you know, those to, to, to me, the, 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 the titles are actually perfectly expressive of um, the experience. And why was he forgotten? I, I think I think uh, the 1950s happened. <laughs> why did why, all, all those 50s writers, when you know life suddenly became about bus stops and um, kitchen sinks, know, k- kitchen sinks, mm. and and a sort of social realism, which totally, totally divorced from sort of Green's much more surrealistic tendencies. And I think you can see the same. You can you can you can see the same thing with 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 much more famous writers like you know Dylan Thomas, who, who's, who's, who's dropped out of fashion like a stone, and it's taken you know many many years for these people to return to the, the place where I would argue that they should always have been. Who are you reading now? At the moment, I'm reading Sir Thomas Brown, uh, who is also, also, I think, a fairly forgotten writer. <laughs> uh, There's a theme here, Andy. <laughs> uh, he got a tr- tremendous 17th century philosopher, theologian, and just uh, observer of, of, of the, the, the rise of strange and, and, and esoteric. But a, but a, 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 a light, light green, a, a, a writer of absolutely exquisite prose. It's time for the Cambridge questionnaire. These are the important questions that I know are on your mind now. Um, you live in Cherry Hinton, don't you? So I'm guessing that your favourite walk might involve Cherry Hinton Park. Would I be right? You would indeed. An evening walk round Cherry Hinton Park is undoubtedly probably my favourite experience in Cambridge. It's beautiful. Not, it's not large, but it's just a beautiful park with, with just glorious trees. And it's backing onto my house. And we, 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 when we moved to Cambridge, like, like lots of people who moved from somewhere else, we exchanged uh, quite a big house with quite a big garden to, uh, quite to, 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 not, to not, not such a big house, um, with a very small garden indeed. The lovely revelation is that uh, you don't have to own the garden to enjoy it. And the, the park is my garden. Uh, and I don't own it, and I don't have to do the lawn uh, or, or plant the flowers, but it's lovely. And where's your favourite place to eat? Uh, oh, the Olive Garden on Regent Street. Oh, tell me more about what they sell. Uh, a fantastic Greek restaurant, really, really beautiful food, marvellous service, really friendly. I take guests there from, from, from the university, it never disappoints. And it is just a very, very relaxing little bit of uh, the southern Mediterranean in Regent Street. And do you have a favourite shop, Andy? Oh, yes. Uh, Relevant Records on Mill Road. I'm a massive contemporary music rock and roll fan. And Relevant Records is just about the best shop that the Lord ever created. I I (laughs) could spend days in there. 
and so, they sell lovely coffee. So if we were a, if we were doing a DJ show now, uh, what would be the next record? The next record would be something by I'm not I, either David Bowie or The Doors or Echo and the Bunny Man. Well, I'm going to have to press you. You're going to have to choose one. Uh, the Doors, People Are Strange. Oh, that'll do. Andy Salmon, thank you very much for being our Cambridge mind on this particular episode. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. It's been a pleasure. People are strange when you're a stranger. Faces look ugly when you're alone. Women seem wicked when you're unwanted. Streets are uneven when you're down. When you're strange. Faces come out of the rain When you're strange No one remembers your name When you're strange When you're strange When you're strange People are strange When you're a stranger Faces look ugly When you're alone Women seem wicked when you're unwanted, streets are uneven when you're down. Strange by the Doors, ending this edition of Cambridge Minds, which was a TDC production for Cambridge 105. Our thanks to Jem Davis from Arm and Andy Salmon from Anglia Ruskin University. I'm Trevor Dan, and I'll have two more Cambridge Minds for you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>